You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producers are Patrick Antonetti and Sean Cherry. Today, two guests. First up, David Purdom. He's a staff writer for ESPN who specializes in sports gambling. And uh, I find what he does just incredibly fascinating. He sort of covers it as a uh, uh, journalistic enterprise. And we talk about where we are nationally in the U.S. regarding the number of states where sports gambling is legal, what he's seeing regarding interest in different sports, um, and then just sort of the media aspect of this and how legacy media and others are are trying to get into sports gambling. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, Barstool's been incredibly successful in the uh, in that space and um, getting young, mostly males with money um, to invest in uh, their partnerships. And so uh, it's a real interesting space and obviously a growing space that everybody's uh, trying to get paid for. So David Purdom starts, and he is followed by Grant Wall, who is, of course, the uh, host of the Football with Grant Wall podcast, longtime Sports Illustrated writer, one of my longtime colleagues, and we talk about the Super Bowl of uh, the Super Bowl. We talk about the Super League collapsing, um, how that happened, uh, exploding in spectacular fashion, and um, a little bit of the hypotheticals as to like where this league would have been in terms of uh, a potential media investment. What. Uh, you know what? What it would have? Uh, what kind of bidding wars might have ensued for it? And then we get a little bit into it. The future of MLS's media, which is coming up. Those rights deals are coming up for ESPN, Fox, and Univision, and the same for NBC, uh, Telemundo with the EPL. So David Purdom of ESPN, followed by Grant Wall, coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, David Purdom is a staff writer at ESPN who specializes in sports gambling. And I think uh, pretty much the best out there at what he does. David, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you, Richard. I'm going to take the under on best, but uh, I do appreciate the kind words. So I always play it safe. I I respect that. Um, So I I have so much to get to, but I want to start with uh, just sort of something like sort of big and overarching. And that is, where are we nationally in the United States regarding the number of states where sports gambling is legal? We have 28 states that have passed sports betting legislation. Six of those states haven't yet launched their sports betting uh, markets, but they're on their way and moving forward. At least 16 have online sports betting markets. Uh, Compared to where we were three years ago when we had the Supreme Court decision that kind of opened up a path, Back then, before that decision, we only basically had Nevada. Delaware had a kind of a a pseudo NFL parlay market that they were allowed to run. But other than that, it was primarily Nevada. So in three years, we're up to 28 states in the District of Columbia that have said, hey, we're going to authorize sports betting. And what do you think is realistic as a ceiling? Utah is going to be tough. Uh, I think Hawaii will be tough. Um, So I'm thinking 47 of 50 states. 
uh, is probably a ceiling. Right now, there's only three states that have not in- introduced any kind of sports betting legislation, and that's Utah, Idaho, Idaho and Wisconsin. Uh, so every other state has at least taken a look at it, at least tried to write up some legislation uh, and move forward. What are the? Do you, is there a reason why those particular states are have not moved forward with legislation? Is it is it the state lawmakers? Is it something cultural? What what is what is your experience say? Yeah, cultural in Utah for sure with, with the Mormon uh, faith base there. Idaho, I'm not really sure what's going on. It's a very conservative state. Wisconsin is a surprising one to me because all around there in Michigan, Illinois, all up in that uh, upper Midwest area, um, they're all legalizing it. Minnesota is going to move forward here pretty soon, I would think as well. Uh, so I'm surprised Wisconsin has at least taken a step to, to introduce some sort of legislation. And then, and again, you, you may not be following this close, but what are your expectations, if you know, regarding Canada, Mexico, some of the countries that are connected to the U.S.? Oh, Canada's going to get it done. They were trying to get it done before uh, the U.S., and they were hoping to beat the U.S., in fact, and hopefully, you know, get some people up there uh, to, to play some bets before U.S. did it. They didn't make that, but now the sports leagues up there, the sports teams have switched gears, and they're now have gone from opposition, which they were strongly three, four, five years ago, to complete support now. So Canada will get it done. Mexico, you can already bet on sports in Mexico and all pretty much throughout uh, Latin America. So that's interesting. I actually should have known that, but I didn't. Um, we, you know, obviously we're not in NFL or college football season. So what I'd be curious about is regarding the interest in betting on the NBA, the NHL, MLB. Have you noticed significant like increase handles in those sports as we see more states uh, legalizing this? It's definitely grown, and we can only use Nevada really as kind of the baseline since they've been doing it for so long, and that market has grown. Uh, What we're seeing now is that we have more visibility to how much is being bet. Previously, if you weren't inside Nevada and you wanted to place a bet on an NBA game, you had to use an online sports book, those offshore sports books that are located down in the Caribbean uh, in, in Central and Latin America. And those guys don't really turn over their handle figures and tell you how much is bet. So right now with all these states, they have to report how much is wagered on that. So we're seeing how much and it does seem to be increasing. But how much of it were people already betting and just now moving from that offshore market to the regulated market? In the, here in the U.S., uh, that's kind of a question that we're all wondering. What about? I mean, how, David, how deep do um, do the demographics get in terms of who is betting? Uh, like you know, men eighteen twenty nine, men twenty nine forty nine. How much? How, you know, what is the percentage of women that bet? Um, do we have a sense of like where the income levels are? Like how at, at this in terms of the data of sports gambling right now? What kind of information do we have? How how granular does it get? Sure, there have been surveys, uh, a lot of different kind of looks at the demographics of it, and, it, and it's male skewed, and it's skewed, and it's eighteen to your forty year olds. You know, a lot of people start betting when they get to college. They go to college, and there's a bookmaker on campus, and that's how they start. And so you get that age group, which is a very valuable age demographic there uh, of sports fans that are have a little bit of expendable in- income. Um, so the education level is very mirrors fantasy sports. You probably We've seen some fantasy sports surveys in the past where, where a lot of those players participate that do have a well are well educated. So you're looking at a similar demographic, uh, male skewed 
to 18 to, you know, your mid thirties up to 40, uh, highly educated with uh, expendable income. All right, let's get to sort of, uh, you know, what this sort of podcast really sort of focuses on. Obviously that's sports media centric from understanding that you obviously work for ESPN, um, uh, and, and they would be part of this question. Where do you see legacy media outlets uh, regarding sports gambling content on air? Where do you see this, let's say, one year from now and then five years from now? We know the market has already started to see some sports gambling-centric shows on ESPN and FS1, et cetera. You know, we're seeing content pop up digitally, including you writing for ESPN.com. So I'd love to get your sense of where you think this will be a year from now and where you might think it'll be five years from now. Well, a year from now, we're already seeing it right now. These alternate broadcasts, they're calling them BetCasts. ESPN had one on uh, Net76ers last week. Um, these companies are coming out instead of having you know the game broadcast, they have an alternate where guys are just talking about the sports betting data. What is the live line on a game? What is the overall o- under on Joel Embiid's uh, you know, free throws? What is Steph Curry's over under with him being on such a hot start? So you're seeing these alternate broadcasts already pop up uh, and we're only if we're looking at just a year into it so five years down the road I wouldn't be surprised if some of these media outlets and we kind of already seen this as well become full-fledged sports books sports books these is a revenue stream that they've been looking for right now you become a, a partner with a sports book and you send players to that sports book and then you in return get a cut from it we've already seen barstool sports do it fox sports has a sports book right now it wouldn't surprise me if we see more and more of those nbc is partnered with points bet which is a sports book so you're starting to see this integration of basically people looking for new streams of revenue and gambling and sports betting being the hot one at right now. So now basically is like the, if you are a, I don't know, a William Hill type or something like this, um, what you get if you partner with a bar stool or if you partner with an ESPN or NBC is their existing base of people who are fans of that product or who are on that product already. Absolutely. You think about what Barstool is with their, you know, young men who, who, who have expendable income and, and want to gamble. Um, so partnering with them, that's Penn National owns them. That's a big casino group that bought uh, Barstool. You're getting their database of clients. And really, that's why DraftKings and FanDuel got a jump start on all these other companies. They're really the dominant two sports betting companies right now because of daily fantasy sports. They got this huge database, a player database, and then they easily converted them over to the sports betting. So you're seeing DraftKings and FanDuel almost becoming their own media outlets in a lot of ways. They've hired writers, uh, editors, and they're putting out their own content. Well, uh, Teddy Greenstein, you probably know Teddy uh, from his days with Chicago, and he is now a main, uh, I think they call him the the, the content editor for PointsBet, which is a sports book. Um, So you're starting to see uh, this whole gravitation of conversions of, you know, traditional media outlets and sports books coming together. Uh, Darren Ravel, I know you, you, your best friend there. He he went to the Action Network, left left ESPN to cover sports betting full time. That's how big it's become. The um, th- so is is the ultimately the the benefit for an NBC let, again. Let's sort of just play it out. ESPN might be too big, but the benefit for a. Uh, uh, a bar stool. The benefit for uh, let's sort of even use just like my place for just a moment. The athletic. If somehow DraftKings comes to a place like that, 
is their benefit just straight strictly cash and 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 money where they'll say hey we'll give you I'll just make this up okay you know a hundred million dollars in exchange for us building on your site a portal where people can in real time place bets into our book for whatever that will be I would say it is more of a traditional advertising relationship, except it's got an affiliate element to it, where they have a DraftKings ads. I, athletic is Bet MGM, so MGM they have an advertising on Bet on Athletic. We're speaking hypothetically here, but they they click on that link. They go that takes them to DraftKings. They deposit money. Once they get that deposit, they get a referral of, of money back. They, they give it back to BetMGM and it's a certain amount. And there are some companies you and I were talking to offline previously. There are some major, huge conglomerates from Europe, Europe right? Europe has had this gambling uh, market a long time, way before the U.S. And so they know exactly how to play the online game. And these companies have come over here, uh, Katina Media, Better Collective, really come over here and made a dent in in, in the market, really took care of, uh, geared up for their share of the affiliate market. I mean, it, so do you, would you expect, would you expect a, a, these kind, either European um, sports gambling companies or the ones that we know in the States, do you expect them to pick off smaller media companies for you know whatever 200,000 400,000 users like I, the Barstool one obviously makes a lot of sense i mean they have millions and millions of uh potential customers but how how far do you think it goes how how much acquisition do you think these places come to the US and to try to pick pick off uh sports consumers they're pretty good at it um how much they will be able to get of the market share right now. And that's what we're talking about, right? Right now, all the sports books are, are fighting for market share. Eventually, there will be some sort of consolidation. And some people say there'll be four. Some people say there'll be five sports books. And there'll just be these giant sports books, but only four or five of them. And these affiliate companies uh, are the ones that kind of fuel them. They fuel them with their customers. And the ones from Europe are very good at SEO, search engine optimization, uh, and they dominate those kind of things. They find out the keyword terms that uh, gamblers are searching for, whether it's, uh, you know, refund bonus or bonus deposit on your sports betting account. And they own those terms and they get uh, really good uh, affiliate traffic and they turn them in. Instead of in the old past days when it was done all offshore, most of these guys were touts and pick sellers, right? They, they, they would have these. These new companies that come in there and they're like my competitors for news now. They have full editorial staff. They're breaking news on which states are going to legalize sports betting and which bills are going to go through. Uh, it is really fascinating to see just how much the competition of covering sports betting has changed. Is, is From your perspective, is it, um, is it the same as many other beats? You ultimately make as many calls as you can. You make as many contacts as you can. You find the people who are... Uh, I mean, I guess in your position, obviously, not only is it the companies, but you might have to sort of have contacts with legislatures in terms of the um, in terms of the story of, you know, which states are are trying to legalize this. But, you know, you also, David, and this is kind of what's fascinating to me about your job. You know, you sort of have one on the one end, you have like the, the news element of it. Uh, 
But there's also people who obviously want from you betting data on games, which is far more of, to me, like a, a sports-specific job. I'm sure there's even people who want picks. So you, 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 the beat is not really a small beat, right? It's a gigantic beat. And it's every sport. Gambling is on every sport. There is not an off season for gambling. So I come from a traditional newspaper uh, background. I was working for the Atlanta Journal Constitution. I was an online producer. I covered high school sports, college sports, and whatever. So yes, you build the beat the same way. You develop and establish your your sources in a wide variety of ranges, from legislators to sports book operators uh, to professional betters, and, and then you gain it. You're right. I ran a poll yesterday on Twitter just trying to see you generated from your podcast question where you were talking to, to Jimmy about what, what interests them. And they were all in the same line with me. Picks don't interest me. I really don't. I just I couldn't care less who is on which team or why they're on which team. Uh, the way I enjoy betting is doing the handicapping myself, filling out the uh, puzzle in a way, trying to. I'm terrible at it. So as you mentioned, when people ask me for picks, that's the first thing I say. In fact, on my Twitter profile says I write about gambling, but I am not good at gambling. Uh, it is true. It is, it is very true. But the beat is it's amazing. And when I started, you know, writing about it, it really kind of struck uh, just a creative spark in me. Some of the stories that come out of these bookmakers and, and things are just wild and fun to write about. What's give me give us a couple of examples. What are some of the stories that, uh, that for you just really, uh, um, I don't know, you know, sort of drive the creativity and the passion for you? One of my favorite stories that I've written was uh, two years ago before the pandemic in Nevada in November. They have the World uh, Bull Riding Bull uh, Riding Championships, right? And there are these professional betters who go around and dress up in cowboy gear while all the tourists in town and try to disguise themselves because a lot of the sports books won't take their action or so forth. So I got to follow this guy around. Uh, he had dressed up in a cowboy outfit and he would go up to uh, the, the counter and try to place what they call stale number parlay cards. That's going to get really into the weeds. But he, he tried to play the, what is an advantage play, right, that the sports books normally would turn down. But he you know, he went up there, he tips them and he's drinking a beer and he, he's joking with them with his, his cowboy accent and just tries to come off as this tourist just to try to get his bets down. So some of the things that these guys do in the professional betting world are, are pretty fascinating to me. Yeah. So they, this is a professional better in many cases is actually a very interesting person um, to profile in that sense. The, the, uh, you know, one of the things that like, um, kind of st stands out to me and, may, and 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 clearly you know maybe there are just professions where you could use this skill set to make a lot more money but would there not be like significant value for a media entity to take the people who are really really analytically savvy when it comes to let's say baseball analytics or basketball analytics people who are just facile with numbers to use that expertise to figure out um uh, betting uh, data, betting trends, be betting market analysis. I, I, I feel like if you are somebody um, who really is, you know, unbelievably good, let's say, at just maybe creating a formula to um, to rank a basketball player or a baseball player, in theory, that same that same kind of data set should be of massive interest to a to a gambler 
who wants to try to get an advantage uh, on a bet, right? Oh, absolutely. The thing about that is, though, they're not going to put that out on Twitter. It's too valuable. They, the professionals that figure out those things, and if somebody were to analyze data and create this model, they wouldn't bother becoming a, a media person. They would go straight to the sports books. Now, once they get to the sports books, the challenge becomes once the sports books realize that they have an advantage, that the other, that the player with the model has an edge. And what happens is they cut them off or they limit them to just minuscule amounts where it makes it not worth it. So that's part of the cat and mouse uh, bookmaker better game that, that, that is played. But you're right. You know, if you were to uh, able to use the data and model it correctly, and that's what a lot of these guys do, um, it's extremely valuable. Will your job get bigger over the next couple of years? I mean, this if you want, like, do, are you someone who wants to go on one of these traditional ESPN shows to to talk about trends or to, to, to talk about analysis. Um, and if not you, in theory, wouldn't there be somebody like you who might be doing this for their television entities or doing it for their audio entities or, you know, maybe being uh, a specialist on ESPN plus, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, you know, we have daily wager and I, I've appeared on that show uh, very once. It, it's pretty pick centric. They do a lot of game uh, and I'm not a person, a handicapper to come in there and break down a game for them. They wouldn't want me to do that. Um, a lot of my uh, information was on outside the lines. I appeared on there a lot. And unfortunately now that is a, only a Sunday only show. So I'm kind of in this weird spot where I have this niche, right, of news and feature coverage, but we don't really have a platform that it really fits into. So uh, eventually, will there be more, uh, you know, that kind of content? I certainly hope so, because I am one that really enjoys the sports betting stories that come out of the the market. And so plus it's not so much the picks and the game breakdowns, but uh, we'll have to see. Um, I don't, pretend to be the greatest TV personality. Uh, but like I mentioned that I was a newspaper reporter, so I had very little TV experience where I came over here. So I, I pretty much just try to wing it the best that I can. Uh, you're doing a good job. I appreciate that honesty. One of the things that uh, I wonder how you feel about this. There are so many people now, um, both either on television or on social media or, you know, but podcasts, et cetera, who make picks. And the likelihood is they're not particularly very good at this. But I wonder, and, and like clearly ESPN and Fox and others have invested in shows that essentially are pick driven shows. I mean, even the very traditional pregame Sunday shows, people make picks. They don't always make it with the spread. But they make picks. And a lot of times just people are incorrect. Which So that's always interesting to me that like these segments continue, David, a lot of times with ultimately what turns out to be incorrect information. But So I see that in a way more as entertainment than information. And I wonder how you look at it. I'm talking about the very mainstream places or mainstream personalities who sort of just give you picks every week. Yeah, it is entertainment. I, I would not want to... Uh, encourage anybody to base their picks slowly on somebody on TV that's made a picky, whether it's a former coach, whether it's a former player. Even if those guys all of a sudden, uh, you, you know, the bear on, on game day gets hot every well, and he'll, he'll release the game and he'll say uh, Oklahoma minus six, that's who I'm taking. Well, if he's hot, by the time that hits the graphic, the betting market is going to move already. So you're now suddenly laying Oklahoma minus seven, Oklahoma minus eight. And that doesn't sound like a nudge to the novice player, but it's a big, big deal. Those Each of those numbers increases your winning percentage. So it is almost impossible 
It's not that these guys aren't trying to make good picks, but even if they were to make excellent picks, you would not be able to bet the number that they're giving it out on. So uh, it, making picks on TV is fun. Everybody likes it. I mentioned that Twitter poll I run. I ran just yesterday. Uh, one of my questions was, uh, would you like, just give me picks. And I think 30% of the other, other people did would just give me picks. So people love picks. I would never encourage them to solely base their betting on them. Yeah. And Chris Relika is a guy who does his homework and studies it. So he's actually, I feel like pretty good in terms of, on air people doing it, but that's, you you know, it's, I, I, it's, and it's, I'm not, this is not a pejorative. It just strikes me as entertainment more than information. Um, and I think that's also part of the sell that these places do. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too, with the name, your price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, let me finish up with a couple things here. I'm finding it really interesting, not necessarily that they're going to get my money, but I find it interesting as sort of a phenomenon. These um, YouTube influencer uh, types like Jake Paul, for example, or someone who is a um, more of a celebrity than an athlete heading into athletic competition, and there being a massive demand to bet on this stuff. Um, that Ben Askren, Jake Paul uh, fight, you might even know the numbers for it, like clearly did big business when it came to sports gambling. Do you see this as a continuing trend, David, where like these kind of exhibition-like things um, – head to the books because like these people in particular, like Jake Paul's case are, um, you know, either so popular or so polarizing that people want a piece of that action. Yeah. I, I think it started with McGregor, uh, McGregor and Floyd. Um, you know, that was a little bit of a novelty and the betting handle on that. In fact, we wrote that it was the betting event of, of the 2010s. We thought it, it generated more money, more betting interest, uh, more big bets. I think there was like $6 million bets uh, on that fight. And usually we only have one or $2 million bets on the Super Bowl. This past weekend, you mentioned we saw Jake Paul. There was a $160,000 bet at William Hill Sportsbook on Jake Paul. $160,000 bet on, you know, what all kind of adds up into a, a novelty fight or an exhibition. And I think people are realizing that the celebrity and who is involved is great. Is There's more interest in that than there is in the actual boxing pedigree. Um, one more thing about that Jake Paul fight. There hasn't been a lot of marquee boxing matches so far this year, and it is only April, but that fight generated more betting handle than any other boxing match that anybody has booked this year. Wow. Do you, do you think this extends to, um, I'm trying to think of an example. Like I know they bet on politics, especially the presidential election, but I'm sure you could probably base, you can bet something on like the Senate, but like, I don't know. Do, do you, I don't even know what, like I'm trying to come up. I wish I could come up with like sort of a, uh, a smart idea, but do, do you do you think the betting markets will ultimately include sort of just things that we might never have expected? Um, you know, people to to bet. On? I mean, listen, I wouldn't bet on this. It's it's kind of a like a like a, a bit of a morbid thought or something like that. But would people bet on um, you know how many case counts in New York 
uh, for COVID there are this month, or you know how many uh, uh, yeah. how, how many how many how many cars are sold in a given month. You know what I mean? Like the, the like at, at a certain point, like if you have handicappers who can figure out how to create the market, in theory, like there's an infinite amount of things you can bet on. Oh, absolutely. There was a prediction market in the U-Call called Intrade, and it eventually got shut down for regulatory reasons. Uh, you know, But at the time, you could bet on uh, whether Osama bin Laden would be assassinated. And this was before he was. And there was a big spike in right after it, right after he got assassinated, and they saw it. And they bad these prediction markets. So uh, don't put it past us to, to to have just some absurd things that we can bet on. Um, there are some regulatory statutes in most states that require uh, action to be on the field or to be decided by a legitimate game and not by a vote. Uh, but we are getting more lax in those. In fact, we have betting on the Oscars in New Jersey right now, and week one the NFL draft. Uh, which is a huge betting event. Didn't know that in Jersey. That's interesting. All right. So, so the last one for me is what was your read on the NFL partnering uh, for the first time with um, sports books in the U.S.? I think it's Caesars, DraftKings, and FanDuel are now the official sports betting partners of the NFL. If you would have told this to somebody 20 years ago who's like into the NFL, they would have fallen down and called you a fool. I mean, but now the NFL is all in. You know, the the the, the days of gambling being verboten are done. They wanted they wanted they wanted money and they have it. So how did you read that deal, which was a monster deal? Yeah, monster deal. Uh, according to the sources I talked to, are familiar with the deal. Uh, if you add all three of the companies' deals together, it was close to a billion dollars. So that's massive, and it's all about that data, their data, and who can transmit those statistics quickly to the sports books. Because there's this thing called live wagering. People aren't placing their games uh, bets before a game and sitting there watching it anymore. They're betting throughout the game on live odds and uh, different plays throughout the game. And in order to do that, you have to have very quick data and very reliable data so that's why these sports books are willing to pay it it is a huge huge deal and the two things that i would mention quickly uh that people will see out come from that come from this deal right they'll, they'll be able to see the difference number one you're going to start to see more odds integration into tv not necessarily break a game broadcast but in some pre-game i wouldn't be surprised if the red zone the nfl red zone network which is so popular and been very based on fantasy sports previously i could see that being more integrated into some gambling coverage there the second thing that i think fans will notice here in the coming years is you're going to go to a game or a golf tournament and there's going to be a physical retail sports book there that at halftime you go up and get you a hot dog and a cold beverage and a three-team parlay. Uh, TPC Scottsdale over there in Arizona announced that they are going to put a retail sports book, uh, kind of a 19th hole experience there at that. Uh, Phoenix Suns Arena are doing the same thing. Wrigley Field is going to put a sports book there, and we already have one in Capital One Arena in Washington, D.C. So those are two things for fans to kind of keep a watch out with that they will see see that that's coming different from those big deals that the leagues are getting are you um last one for me is are you of uh it's not gambling per se but it is investment are you interested in nfts and particularly how they are relating to the sports world 
where the, the gambling world certainly is. You know, I, I've only looked at it very peripherally, but uh, it's been amazing just to see how those have taken off NBA Top Shot. And, and all the guys that were big uh, daily fantasy players uh, at, at the time, a guy named Peter Jennings, Jonathan, Jonathan Bales, uh, they're really into it. So uh, they have kind of gravitated from that to the next thing. And it kind of goes along with cryptocurrency too, right? It's all in that kind of realm. So pretty fascinating for sure. It's interesting because I feel like that that sort of um, attracts a certain archetype, uh, and there is a risk taker. I feel like within that archetype, and that's where I would see I would I could see NFTs and um, sports gamblers intersecting. Obviously, you know, there's a certain level of finance or capital that you got to have when you're playing in the real significant NFT market. But but you're right. That's that's interesting to me, and and I'll watch that. Um, David Purdom is a staff writer at ESPN. He covers um, sports gambling. Uh, he really, in my opinion, is the uh, the best at this in terms of covering it on a uh, uh, like a sort of a, a journalistic uh, approach to these stories. I, I find everything uh, the guy does just really, really interesting, and um, and I think he's at the forefront of uh, of a of a beat that just continues to grow and grow and grow. Follow him on Twitter if you're on that service at David P U R. D-U-M. David, man, thanks. I appreciate it. I know I'm asking you sort of a, a little bit of uh, larger primer questions, but um, but this stuff's interesting to me, and I, I think what you do, far more in, uh, interest to, to people than, uh, than maybe even your bosses realize. So thanks very much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Really appreciate it, Richard. Thanks for having me. Good conversation. Before history is written... Played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. All right, as I said at the top, Grand Wall is the host of the Football with Grant Wall podcast, longtime Sports Illustrated writer, one of the uh, preeminent voices when it comes to soccer in the United States. Grant Wall, nice enough to come on for a couple minutes to talk about the collapse of the Super League, and we'll give it a little bit of a media look. Uh, all right, Grant, before we even do that, though, just sort of an overview. Um, I mean, what do you make of this spectacular collapse i have to be honest like i love chaos and collapsing and it's just even better when it's incredibly wealthy and greedy people so it was kind of an amazing thing to sort of see and follow on twitter i am stunned by the the amount of incompetence that went with this breakaway league and the announcement so such that it collapsed within 48 hours and these are the biggest clubs in world soccer rich and and in to see the response from fans, which was almost universally against the idea of this Super League and what it would mean for 100 years of tradition and the domestic leagues and the whole pyramid of European soccer, it's crazy to me that the billionaire owners of these clubs didn't anticipate what kind of reaction would, would come with this. But it really shows you how out of touch they were with their fan bases. 
It's actually amazing because they had a, they actually hired a communications firm and like you know there was a in theory a public relations plan, but this this one will be studied for a long time in terms of uh, in terms of failed rollouts. Um, before we get to like what it means, sort of heading forward uh, on a media level, I want to ask you uh, play a little bit of a hypothetical game here. Had the Super League gone to market, Grant? Like whenever it would go to market, which I would assume would would have been relatively soon, uh, they would have been essentially in the same right space with MLS, which is coming to market regarding the ESPN, the Fox, and the and the Univision deals, and NBC and Telemundo's deal with the EPL is also up after next season. So uh, you would sort of have a better sense even than me on this, even though obviously I talk to the TV people. Um, like how competitive do you think this package would have been in relation to the existing packages that are coming to market? Well, if the Super League had actually found a way to, to happen and if they had gotten 15 founding members, as they were calling them, basically the 15 biggest clubs in Europe to – agree to be a part of it every year because they could not be relegated from it. Um, they could have gotten a huge amount of money for those rights because, and it's not necessarily even competing against MLS or domestic leagues for the most part, because these would have been midweek games like UEFA champions league currently is in the domestic leagues and MLS play on, mostly on weekends. Like there's very little overlap even right now between Champions League and domestic leagues. But, you know, this, I like, I'd love to say that fans would have, if the Super League had gone ahead and happened, that fans would have boycotted. And But like, I don't think they would have, you know? So from a pure financial perspective, I think there's a reason why these billionaire owners pushed and pushed and pushed here to try and do it. Because it probably would have been successful financially. You know what was interesting to me is I saw statements coming out of media entities, which was like that was really odd because they are usually not ones to sort of proactively come out and either take a stand or a non-stand. Like Sky basically said it doesn't have a position on this. Like Amazon sort of did. It was, that was just really. Fa- I don't know, Grant, how you found that, but. That was kind of fascinating to me because, in general, all of these outlets, you know, you don't want to reveal any hand. You you, you essentially always want to um, have the option or the opportunity to, you know, to get a property either new or existing, and you don't want to telegraph anything into the market. But I almost felt like they had to. Some of these places had to say something because they knew, sort of, just how bad the publicity was ab- about this idea. I mean, the two companies that interested me the most in this regard were Amazon and DAZN, who both put out announcements saying, we're not a part of this. We're not, you know, like, don't, don't blame us. We're not, we're not interested. And actually, when I saw the Amazon one in particular, I was like, oh, this thing has a real chance of not succeeding if Amazon's going out of its way to say it has no interest in this. It's, it's that much of a... Uh, sort of a nuclear situation at this point. And Sky Sports, I just kind of chuckled at because Sky Sports was the main beneficiary of the Premier League breaking away from the existing situation in England back in the early 90s. And Sky Sports built its entire business on the Premier League. 
Yeah, I mean, I said this, uh, you know, and I, I honestly mean it. Like, there there were no heroes in this. There's just lesser villains, right? <laughs> there are no good guys in any of this. And that's what was so funny. Like, since when is FIFA the good guy? You know, one of the most corrupt organizations in the history of sports. It's not like UEFA has covered itself in glory over the years. And then you see people fighting the Super League included uh, Paris Saint-Germain, which is a petro state funded team uh like you know roman abramovich was one of the first to pull out with chelsea so yeah there's no good guys here one of the things that uh and again you know it's not really going to be a factor until we find out what any of this means but if you were cbs and univision and you had the champions league uh which i think in both those cases they have it through i think 2024 i mean can you imagine like Whenever you as an executive found out like this possibility was existing, because like had they pulled this off or had something like this existed, like your property just went from like, you know, 80 miles per hour to like 10 miles per hour. Right. And, you know, like the way that Florentino Perez, the head of the Super League, the head of Real Madrid was putting it, they were going to try and get this going as soon as possible. So maybe even earlier than the current contracts in 24, uh, which is the current Champions League contract runs through with CBS and in Univision. Plus, keep in mind, the Super League would have totally hurt the domestic leagues like the Premier League. And so NBC would have gotten hurt by that. Because if you think about it, the only thing that is interesting right now at this point in the season in the Premier League is the race for the top four. And the top four are the ones that qualify for next year's Champions League. But if you take away the the stakes and suddenly finishing the top four doesn't matter, then that creates all sorts of problems for the Premier League. People won't care as much about the games at that point. And I would even argue that it would set up an incentive for the Premier League to create an end of season playoffs to determine the Premier League champion like we see in the NBA, NFL, and American sports, because otherwise there's not going to be much suspense. Did these clubs at all, like from your, because I didn't see much of this and maybe I didn't see much of it because it didn't exist, but did they have any kind of plan regarding their uh, women's programs? Because some of these clubs, you know, have significant, uh, you know, women's teams. They've invested money, brought in some U.S. players, Etc. Um, I think if PSG sort of wasn't a part of it, I, I think you can correct me if I'm wrong, but they've always had a really good um, women's program. But like, was there any talk of this at all? Because once again, it, it would strike me that they didn't they didn't sort of think this out. Because maybe if you could have somehow sold it as okay, we're going to form this super league, and as part of this money grab that we're doing we're going to help fund the women's game we're going to bring soccer to the masses more but like that clearly wasn't a part of it either well there was a one sentence sort of afterthought self-serving statement from the super league and its official initial statement saying this is going to be great for women's soccer as well because we're going to create a women's soccer super league and part of the problem was was that it was of a piece with some of the other self-serving BS that they put in their statement about how the Super League was going to save all of soccer in Europe because they were going to issue payments 
to the rest of the pyramid that were greater than what UEFA currently does. And the problem was, is that they, they weren't acknowledging that the Super League was designed and intended to make the rich clubs richer and increase the gap uh, between the rich teams and the smaller teams. So now, you know, as we head forward, and obviously the the you know the these teams now come back to their domestic leagues. Uh, some of the you know executives for these teams are not going to be um, part of it. I mean, talk about like losing one of these like you know gold standard once in a lifetime jobs uh, over this. But you know, like I, I'm not so convinced. Like somehow, Grant, that like oh man, like Manchester United's going to have to. You know, they're really going to have to pay the piper when they're back in the in the Premier League or Real Madrid's going to like at the end of the day, these are still the draws of these domestic leagues. So, like, what do you think? Ha- like, you know, I, I like I, I guess I the one thing I'm not sure of. I mean, it's great that they got it handed to them and this thing blew up. But like, I, I'm not sure there's long term implications here only because like, you know, ultimately, like the, the reality is like the the. The Premier League needs these, you know, ne- needs these teams. And, you know, I can't even think of what the Spanish League would be like without Barca or Real. So, how, like, what do you think it means, like, now that these teams, in theory, are back in these domestic leagues? I mean, there's a lot of fans right now who are out for blood saying that the, these breakaway teams should be prevented from being in European competition next year. They should be kicked out, demoted from the Premier League. I don't see that happening because you're right. The the Premier League and the and the UEFA Champions League, they need these teams. So we might see some individual executive departure. We've already seen Ed Woodward, the top executive at Manchester United. They already announced he's going to be leaving at the end of the season. That has to have something to do with the way this Super League was bungled. I'm not sure exactly how much it plays in that decision. So there might be others, uh, other executives that end up losing their jobs because of this. Uh, There's some question about whether an owner like Stan Kroenke might end up selling Arsenal or the Glazers, which own Manchester United, might end up selling uh, as a result of this. Clearly, those fan bases don't like their own owners. And Ian Wright, the Arsenal legend, already came out yesterday on Twitter with Kroenke out. And so there is some really negative sentiment toward these owners, less so a bit toward the Liverpool owners, uh, John W. Henry and, and the rest, because those guys at least have brought trophies to Liverpool in recent years. They've won the Champions League and the Premier League. So, um, yeah, it's it's interesting, but I, I don't think we're going to see some huge punishments exacted here. Let me go though. I guess the last thing I would say is this: It's like you know, like if you're, um, if you're the Glazers, like you bought Manchester United for a reason. Like the reason is you wanted this once in a lifetime property, the same way people buy once in a lifetime art. And like just because there's an angry fan base at the ownership, I don't see them selling. And don't fans usually get appeased if the if the product on the field ultimately is is great? I mean, that's another issue that fans of United have with the Glazers is they haven't won the Premier League since Sir Alex Ferguson left. They haven't won the Champions League either. And and they've had a a run of uh, coaches they've hired who just haven't been Sir Alex Ferguson. So that's a lot to do with what how fans feel toward ownership. Same thing with Arsenal. 
and, and why their fans don't like the Cronkies. So that's a big part of it. But I, I don't personally feel like we're going to see Manchester United or Arsenal be sold here. I don't want to totally rule it out because, you know, the Cronkies and, and the Glazers are famously private about this stuff too, right? Even in the U.S. And I guess if I have to, to predict one side or the other is that they would not sell those teams. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. All right, here's the last one, Grant, I want to ask you, and that's, uh, we'll stick to MLS, um, you know, which you and I have talked about in the past. Um, they go to market, they have three incumbents in ESPN, Fox, and, and Univision, and the the league has certainly, in the pre-pandemic world, saw some great attendance. I mean, the Atlanta, Atlanta was one of the best stories, not just in MLS, just I would say in, in professional sports in the United States in terms of the kind of attendance they were getting. The one thing that always remains with this league, of course, is the television issue. They, there seems to be sort of a, uh, you know, like a ceiling that they can't get past. And, you know, they've occasionally put like the championship game on, um, you know, over the air like Fox and, you know, it might get a pop, but then the regular season games sort of revert to what what they revert to. Um, what's your, I mean, obviously the inventory is going to be sold because there are groups that want it, but what's just your sense in terms of the demand of MLS and, and the interest in, um, in these outlets sort of having a long-term relationship with MLS? I'm really curious to see how it plays out because this current eight year deal, uh, for television that MLS has runs out at the end of next year, at the end of 22, the new deal starts at the start of 23 and, ESPN, I could certainly see wanting to continue its relationship with MLS. Fox Sports, I'm, I'm less sure about. Um, be, you know, they've really declined in their their interest in soccer and the amount of rights that they have. That they still have the World Cup, obviously. One question for me is: Will MLS and U.S. Soccer, the national teams, men's and women's, continue to bundle their rights packages together? Because that's a huge benefit for MLS, and also would probably Fox would have more interest at that point because the national teams feed into the World Cup, and they have the rights to the World Cup through 2026. So that's a big question, and also CBS, which has just come out of nowhere over the last year to get all of these soccer rights and put them mostly behind the Paramount Plus paywall. So you're talking about UEFA Champions League, the Italian League, NWSL Women's League. Uh, they've got the away qualifiers for the U.S. men's national team for the next World Cup, Argentina, Brazil. So like CBS is just gobbling up all these soccer rights. So I think there's a decent chance that they'll go after MLS. I think there's a decent chance they'll go after the Premier League. I, th I think I think you're right. Um, and the one thing I think that's clear, and again, I you know I, I have not done reporting on this, so it's just more sort of informed conjecture on my part is, if you just look and Grant you used to work there, if you just sort of look at the moves that Fox has made regarding soccer, uh, it, you know, including behind the scenes production people leaving, it, you know, it strikes me that 
I don't know. They don't strike me as being in a position to want to invest in MLS long term. Now, maybe I'll that will prove to be wrong, and they'll 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 re up. But I'm with you. That would not it would not surprise me in the slightest if they basically told MLS where we're not looking to extend heading forward. And then it gets very interesting in terms of the places that have streaming capacity: CBS, Paramount Plus, Peacock for NBC. Um, you know, and who wants to, you know, ESPN, obviously with guys plus who, who wants to go big on that? Because Fox has another issue at the moment. They're, you know, they're nowhere near where these other networks are in terms of inventory for streaming. So I'm with you on that. Like, I think when this shakes out, I think it's ESPN for sure, probably Univision. And then we're going to get, I feel like another player who, who makes the commitment to MLS. If I had a bet, I would say CBS, but we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. Makes sense. Given that now the one thing, and you do with a lot of uh, MLS fans, the one thing that'll be real interesting there is how will MLS fans react if so much of that inventory is on a streaming service as opposed to over the air, that or or, or cable, I should say, you know, because you know CBS is gonna CBS is gonna bulk up Paramount uh, for that, Paramount Plus for that, and um, and not put that on, you know, outside of maybe you know the final or some selected games on big CBS, so. I'd be curious to see how MLS fans react to that because they're going to have to pay if they want the league. I would think that if MLS ends up doing a deal with CBS, MLS would insist on some carriage on cable. Or, I would agree. Some. The question is, how, the how, who's got the leverage in that, you know? Right. No, that's a great question. I mean, right now you've got ESPN Plus has all the out-of-market MLS games, but we're also seeing MLS games this past opening weekend on Big Fox on ABC on over the air Unimas. So, I mean, they're at least being exposed to to fans and they'll want to be exposed to as many new fans as possible to ride off the 2026 World Cup and 22, but 26 is happening here in North America. Which which I think again, there's I understand you want to build these streaming services up, but like there are you just should sort of think in terms of sort of long-term building strategies, and you just hit it on the head. The World Cup is going to be such turbo fuel for soccer fans, and I think you would you would be smart if you have MLS to put that on uh, places where you can get as much eyeballs on it so that people really sort of get wedded for the appetite for soccer because 2026 could, in theory, be transformational when it comes to soccer fandom in this country. Uh, Grant, good of you to come on. It's, the, it's football with Grant Wall. That podcast, the guy has, uh, he. if you look at his guest list, Grant, if you look at your guest list, it's insane. You're getting some big time people on that. It's pretty good, right? <laughs> we'll have to get you on at some point. I remember no, our you, days Grant, hosting yes. the soccer podcast. You hosted the soccer podcast at Sports Illustrated every week. And I'm sure you miss it. I don't miss the threats basically coming in from soccer fans yelling at me for mispronouncing <laughs> names. That's not something I, I do miss, but I, uh, I understand that. Grant Wall, everyone. Thank you, Grant. Thank you. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to David Purdom and Grant Wall for their insights and for the conversation. If you like uh, these kind of podcasts, head to the Sports Media Richard Deitch archives, uh, check some stuff out, leave us a five star review uh, and a note that is really helpful. As uh, my boss is at uh, Cadence 13, always check that out. Last couple episodes Jimmy Train of Sports Illustrated and Chan Fit of the Boston Globe talked about uh, had a roundtable discussion on various sports media topics including whether ESPN 
should have jettisoned Paul Pierce. Prior to that, Paul Heyman. He went behind the scenes on WrestleMania and the WWE, how uh, performers uh, can do their work uh, with no crowds, uh, what makes a great promo. If you're a wrestling fan, Paul Heyman is always great. And then prior to that, NFL Network reporter Stacey Dales and ESPN MLB reporter Marley Rivera. Again, on a number of subjects, uh, head down the list on the archives page. I imagine you will find something, or I hope you find something, that is of interest to you. I want to thank Patrick Antonetti and Sean Cherry for their work, uh, as always, on this podcast. Greatly appreciated. Thank you to uh, everybody at Cadence 13 for their support, and most importantly, thank you for listening. We are uh, getting close to uh, 150 episodes on this podcast. Uh, the new version of this podcast, obviously the Sports Illustrated one before Jimmy took that over. Uh, I think I did 300 or something or so. So I've been doing this for a while, and I really appreciate the support. I hope people like it. I still enjoy doing it. And so uh, thank you very much for listening. I never take that for granted. So for Patrick and Sean, it's Richard Deitch. We'll see you again on the Sports Media Podcast.